on the road again Just can't wait to get on the road again The life I love is making music with my friends And I can't wait to get on the road again On the road again Going places that I've never been Seeing things that I may never see Hello, welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, I'll be looking at uh, part of Mark Twain's Roughing It, uh, which was published first in 1872. And as I hinted at in previous episodes on this in this series, this really is one of my favorite Mark Twain books, uh, probably my favorite of like the nonfiction memoir type of books that we've come across. I'll, I'll have to reread uh, his his later travel logs before I can make a final determinant. But but compared to Life on the Mississippi and and Innocence Abroad, I think this one has just got a lot more juicy, interesting things to reflect on. It's funnier. It's it's comical. It's it's more about him and his experiences. And it's more about America, which also I think is a is a bonus because I always like those explorations. Uh, Life on the Mississippi is is kind of a, a then and now kind of book, and it works really well in that way. But I, I found that one got a little bogged down in certain places. Uh, I was more interested in the in the training to be a pilot stuff. The then stuff was a little more interesting than the, than the now and the changes to the West. Um, now. This book, Roughing It, explores um, basically the silver frontier of Nevada in the 1860s, right, really during the Civil War. Um, now, he wrote it in 1872, or published it anyways, but this was just as he was giving up journalism and, and beginning to write other things and beginning to work on things like Tom Sawyer, published in 76, um, and... You know, he had written a novel, Gilded Age, I think not long after this. And I find it um, really flawless um, in many ways. It's it's autobiographical, as I said, covering Twain's life between the end of his really brief period in the Civil War, you know, where he fought for the Confederacy, kind of as part of the local Missouri militia, not really taking that too seriously, abandoning that. Um, and then later on, he does his travels to Europe after he becomes a journalist. So this is at the end of kind of his journalistic career. And we'll come back and revisit his journalistic career when we look at his writings from that period, which there are many of them. But that's a, that's another part of this series, which we'll get to. The Library of America actually published two volumes of his short fiction and, and writings from his, you know, his various types of journalism that he wrote throughout his life. He'd always be involved in journalism and in writing those kinds of contemporary issue kind of reportage, but his like period as a professional um, journalism comes to an end. Now, this book also is about him becoming a journalist. So we have him, you know, we got a lot of frontier stuff. We got travels to the West, travels to Hawaii, how he got involved in journalism. We got that kind of frontier style um, reportage on, you know, on frontier life. There's a lot of myth-making going on here. Uh, obviously, we're still dealing with the, the myth of the Wild West. Culturally, and historians have debated to what degree um, that is true and overstated and exaggerated. Now, Mark Twain's clearly on the side of the Wild West. 
here, at least as myth. So I do think there is um, um, some of that going on here. Um, but anyways, um, here's what he calls it. He calls it a, a quote, not a pretentious history or a philosophical dissertation. It is a record, record of several years of ver variegated vagabonding. Um, it's great. It, it is really, really wonderful. So if you haven't read this work by, by Mark Twain, I suggest you, you check it out. Uh, the first part, really, we're just talking about 1861. Um, he, after giving up on fighting in the Civil War, giving up on his time as a, you know, as a militia participant, um, he, get, he follows his brother to Nevada. Uh, who's got a, like an official post in the Nevada government. So he goes along on this journey west, finding kind of trying to understand what, where this will take him. So by this point in his life, he's already been like the, the steamboat pilot, and he's already been um, yeah, a soldier for a brief period of time in the militia, and now he's going to kind of open up you know, what's going to be out there. I think his intention really is to become a prospector and get involved in the silver mining, but he's kind of seems he's very open throughout the book to different opportunities and experiences and, and things that may come up uh, that it, when he bumps up against them. And I think that's a lot of the fun of the book too. Uh, just a young man trying to find his way in this, this still unformed world of the, of the American frontier. At the time that capitalism is not yet fully got its teeth into it, that would happen after the American Civil War. But we're still had a more democratic kind of feel to it, at least democratic in the, in the, 19th century American style, you know, for white men, you know, kind of democratic capitalism of that of that type before it really gets taken over by a by a much more aggressive centralized state and, and corporate capitalism we get in the in the post-war period in the Gilded Age. So, now of course, this is being written at a time when that's beginning to change. And he certainly reflected on it. He, he writes in his prefatory matters here, he says, I allude to the rise, growth, and culmination of the silver mining fever in Nevada, a curious episode in some respects, the only one of its peculiar kind that has occurred on this land and the only one indeed that's likely to occur in it. Now, of course, there's other mining frontier regions, right? Like Deadwood with gold and we got the 49ers, right? So I don't think it's quite as unique. I think he's talking about the silver mines. Um, which, of course, there's a lot of silver in the Americas, too, as the Spanish knew. But, um, but yeah, it's a world being thrust into, into the world system of, of, of American cap. And that's, you know, or at least the American part of the world system of, of, of global capital. But it's going to have to, you know, be transformed. It's, you know, the Indians are going to be removed. Institutions are going to be built. Governmental institutions institutions of journalism, which, as we see here, support, in many ways, the endeavors of of the various miners and, and corporations and, and play a role in the taming of the West, in a way. So I, I think all that is at play in this this work. And then on top of it all, it's super, super funny. It's really, I think he really masters his use of repetition and, and tall tales and, and just his use of language for comedic effect. He does it really well here, better than I think in Innocence Abroad, which is jokey and, and, and comical at times, but it's, 
it's not talking about America. I think that's the big difference. It's talking about Americans abroad and a small sector of them and how they might view the past. But it's not really talking about the American landscape, except in like references to to Lake Tahoe or whatever. So let's let's jump in and, and, and go into some of my thoughts about, about what's in here. Um, so it describes his accompanying his brother, um, his experience as a prospectors and his few brief days as a millionaire due to silver claims. And I don't know how much of that's overblown, but he, he you know, money could be quickly lost and won in those days. I, I think that's really some interesting stuff there. We, um, way the way claims were divided up is almost currency and, and you can even tip people with a share of, of these of these speculative ventures throughout the the nevada frontier i enjoyed pretty much you know every page of roughing if i want to say you know almost every page it's many many short chapters it's a shorter book than innocence abroad but it's cut up into 80 chapters so basically you're getting some kind of new reflection or new story or new commentary every few pages and it can be picked up and read at just about any point there it doesn't really need to be studied systematically i think uh, now there are some chapters there's some stories that go on for several chapters but by and large it's um they're just little vignettes pieced together and in that way it's like his other travel log works like life on the mississippi um and even like huck finn in a way where you get all these little vignettes of, of slices of life throughout the mississippi um now, the line between myth and reality is something you've always got to deal with with these texts. I don't think uh, it's any less true here. Um, you know, like when he says he became a millionaire for a day or something. Um, maybe. Uh, I don't know. I have to pick up a biography of, of Mark Twain to fully um, explore the reality of all that. Which I'm not going to do. I'm just going to look at the text as it is. Um, but this is part of the culture of the West that Twain is encountering, in which myth is part and parcel of just living and surviving, right? People survived in the silver mining frontier based on the myths they made about themselves and their, and what they found. Like the, everything was, it was an economy built on, on speculation and myth and story and imagination. Um, now the first part, the part, the first hundred pages will really cover the ride west, uh, which they, they, there's no railways. So it's like, uh, you know, they take stagecoaches and and covered wagons and things like that to get to to Nevada. But let me give you an example of one of my favorite stories here, and that is um, the v vigilante vagabond named Slade. You know, this takes several chapters for him to explore, but it's great stuff. Um, now he heard about Slade from stories he picked up during his travels west. His real life encounter with Slade was kind of pleasant and, and not as interesting. It didn't match his stories, right? Now, according to the mythology we're given in the book, Slade was a murderer, an outlaw, but also a lawman when time called for it. So he would put on like very much like Old West kind of mythology. He'd pick up the sheriff's button when he needed to act or sometimes he'd be a vigilante. Um, and he would be very vicious to his enemies, whether they're on the side of the law or the side of uh, civilization or, or the villains, which he had no trouble kind of going in and out and experiencing. Um, when Twain finally does meet Slade, he notices that, quote, it was hardly possible to realize that this pleasant person was the pitiless scourge of the outlaws, the raw head and bloodied bones of 
nursing mothers on the mountains terrified their children with. And to this day, I can remember nothing remarkable about Slade, end quote. So it's, uh, he's the boogeyman. And when he finally meets the boogeyman, he's just a guy, kind of probably as smelly as everyone else. And uh, as just plain and, and normal. It's like there's kind of that dem- feeling of like a democratic foundation for white men here where they're all just kind of equal. They all have equal chance and an equal opportunity and just grab what they can. And Slade's one of these people, but he gets built up as a myth, right? As, as, a, as a leader, as someone who breaks free of that, of that, uh, that equality, right? Myth does that, right? Myth takes the, the, the normal and makes it superhuman. And, and that seems to be what's going on with this character of Slade, at least the way Twain um, tells the story. Now, I was really reminded of like uh, the Wires character of Omar Little, this this character who at the local level uh, kind of is, is just a normal guy, but he's uplifted into mythological standings from the perspectives of the of the of the common people. And then he just sort of gets ignobly shot by by a nobody in the, in that story. But Slade kind of has the same fate. He ends up on the gallows, right? And blubbering and, and begging for life like in, in like like other people. Um, I mean, that's he kind of loses some of his reputation by his cowardly. And that's how it's described in the book, the way he faces his death with tears and prayers and things like that, that all you know that that ends the myth that ends the story now of course the stories live on i suppose but they're not gonna have the same punch as when he was alive and and everyone feared him um this is really something someone should like explore i want to know more about this slate guy some historian maybe can dig up the truth about this 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 character um it's vernacular myth making right and and Twain is just the reporter on it. He's just reporting the vernacular myth. He's not creating it himself. I mean, maybe he's enhancing it because people are going to read this book who never go to go to Nevada. But he he rises. He there's something really here about the people creating their heroes, right? And I think that's probably something we can look into just other kind of myths throughout there are throughout history um now children of course know much about the heroes of greek mythology they know grimm's fairy tales they i don't think today we have the same kind of relationship to our own local heroes and villains right and and maybe we really do need more people like slade there to to give character to our local communities especially as we're trying to break free of this kind of this kind of culture that's that's online and detached from anything real, any real experiences or any real struggles, right? And we're all we're all obsessed with the representation of things on on the internet, right? We have memes that become global in in days, and and we focus our attention on even when we're critical of them, we we focus our attention on the real heroes and villains of the of the of the world stage, but not our local struggles or our local experiences. You know, I, I, you know, like like the local capitalist, right, or the local uh, union man, or something like that. These these stories, I think, aren't as 
they're not as much a part of our experience as they were when, when we didn't have that kind of global culture. Now, according to the text here, it took Twain, Samuel Clemens, uh, I guess he wasn't taking on the name Mark Twain yet. Uh, in fact, we get the story of how he got the name Mark Twain uh, in... Um, well, no, that's in that's in Life on the Mississippi, but I, but I think we we see him beginning to use that name here when he's doing his journalism stuff. But, anyways, uh, he travel. It takes it's three three weeks by stagecoach to get to to Nevada, and it's a very uncomfortable trip. Um, but you learn a lot from it, and it's twenty five percent of the book. He kind of makes a big chunk of the text. You know, twenty five percent of the text of this book is just that trip. Um, And maybe there's something to say about that too, the way we travel instead of airplanes. Maybe we, we do need to think about degrowthing our, our travel because we're losing something in the experiences, right? Right. If we're just in a little cramped airplane cabin, we get somewhere quick, but, but we're not talking to our neighbors. We're not interacting with them. We're not seeing the sights, right? Like you would on, a, on, a, on an Amtrak trip or whatever. Um, People used to do that, right? And it was the, the trains were a site of, of sociability and storytelling and, and experiences. And and it certainly is for Mark Twain here. Um, there's much in life to be experienced and learned along the way to places, I guess. And, and we, we lose that too. Um, Anyways, well, I guess I want to, you know, Mark Twain kind of himself mourns this. He, he mourns the passing of stagecoaches across the West, too, saying stagecoaching on the overland is no more. And stage drivers are a race defunct. I wonder if they bequeathed that ball-headed anecdote to their successors, the railway brakemen and conductors. And if those latter still persecute the helpless passenger with it until he concludes as many a tourist of other days that the real grandeurs of the Pacific coast are not Yosemite or the big trees, but Hank Monk and his adventures with Horace Greeley. Now this is a, this is about a story he, he repeats. It's, it's one of those moments where he uses repetition really well, where um, this guy, Hank Monk had Horace Greeley in a stagecoach. And I mean, I could just read the story. He, he retells the story several times because it's a story that's like everyone uses. Everyone knows the story because it got passed around by word of mouth. And Mark Twain has a lot of fun with that and jokes about how kind of ridiculous the story is, especially when he gets to repeat it. It's like the only story these people have. But it's spread along the Grapevine Telegraph, right? It's like the, 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 the Facebook of the time, right? So let me find it. All right, here it is. Now, it's told exactly the same way every time he hears it. And, and it's so he can tell by memory. He can spread it to us now. Now we're the next in the chain of transmission here. Um, here's the story. I can tell you a most laughable thing indeed, if you would like to listen to it. Horace Greeley went over on this road once when he was leaving Carson City. He told the driver, Hank Monk, that he had an engagement to lecture at Placerville. And he was very anxious to get through quick. Hank Monk cracked his whip and started off at an awful pace. The coach bounced up and down in such a terrific way that it jolted the buttons all off of Horace's coat and finally shot his head clean through the roof of the stage. And then he yelled at Hank Monk and begged him to go easier. But he weren't in as much of a hurry as he was a while ago. 
said he wasn't he weren't as much a hero as a hurry as he was a while ago but hank monk monk said keep your seat horace and i'll get you there in uh, i'll get you there on time and you bet he did too what was left of him end quote that's the joke i mean it's a stupid little joke i mean it's not even that funny like what's left of him you know kind of commenting on the rough nature of of rapid stagecoach you know speeding you know you're gonna get bounced around in the stage he jokes about this at one point how you're like people you know he was getting bounced around you know head first rolling around like a like a ball in a in, in a in a box you shake um but the key here is the story he compares this literally to the story of of george washington and that and and the hatchet that of course becomes a national story this is just like a regional or or a local story but it has just as much power um to to the listeners and the tellers of it apparently now i guess the other thing to talk about in this part of the book the first hundred pages of this text would be the mormons where he does reflect on and comment on the mormon uh, migration to the west and of course he stops in salt lake and and you know meets with brigham young and things like that and 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 uses this time to to make fun of the mormons he makes fun of their the book of mormon and how how it was written and he's not too impressed with the the text which is just a a host of like overly dramatic and exaggerated battles that that seems to never end he you know he's teasing the mormons and he, and he talks about polygamy too which is something of course that's what the average person at the time would have known about mormonism um would have been would have been polygamy and and that's kind of explored in the his encounters with brigham young who who had tons of wives and 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 how like he doesn't know his family members names he doesn't know his wife's names and his children's names it's just like it's like too much of a hassle keeping track of birthdays and everything so the the conclusion is like don't don't marry more than one person of course they do it right they they continue that because it's god's flaw or whatever but he has a, a lot of fun with uh with uh polygamy as well now it's ultimate conclusion about them um i mean they're both part of the west they they traveled to the west the same way he did and on these stagecoaches or, or covered, I guess they took covered wagons, maybe. Um, Twain took the stage, but um, they're part of that migrant, right? And he actually encounters a caravan of, of Mormon migrants on their way. Um, now, he's certainly very interested in them. He's not, he's, he's even though he, he has to sort of be jokey about them because that's part of his brand, but he's seems very interested and, and almost to a degree respectful of their way of life and their experiment because it is something so different it is trying something new um now he does a quick and devastating deconstruction of the book of mormon but he sees them as mostly harmless and, a, and an interesting part of the american landscape like everything else we see like whether it's Slade or the horace greeley story or whatever else it may be or or the own stories he's adding to the mythology of the West. He, he concludes about the Mormons, quote, the Mormon Bible is rather stupid and tiresome to read, but there's nothing vicious in his teachings. So, um, yeah, I really urge you to read this. I, I think it's, it's a lot of fun. I'll be saying more um, about, to the degree there's themes in this book, I think they really come 
clear when he gets to Carson City. So I'll save that for the next episode because the next part of the book is really going to explore his Carson City adventures and his time to become a mine prospector. And that really gets into this, this the nitty gritty of, of, of how capitalism in its early stages is being worked out in this, this frontier area. And I'll, and I'll save my thoughts about that too. Um, to the next episode uh to the next episode when i get into that um yeah the first 100 pages really just cover his travels um and the stories he comes across while he's he's traveling um i do urge you to kind of read the description of slade part of it the story of slade because i think that's um the heart of what he's trying to get at here uh in the in myth making and mythologizing the west and then how twain is kind of taking on that role He's carrying on these stories. I mean, he's documenting them. He's keeping them alive. These are oral traditions that maybe wouldn't have survived in popular memory if not for his uh, efforts in, in jotting them down. So, and then just the the experience of travel. Um, it's it's not what we get in in Innocence Abroad. Innocence Abroad was the was it all about the destination. It was about getting to the place. It was, all, it was we got to get to see the david or get to see the vatican or get to see mount vesuvius or get to see the louvre and it was just like check like i said many times in the last few episodes it was like checking off lists in a in a guidebook right or, or checking off your mini quest as you're playing through a like elden ring or something it's it's like that it's this is much more about the journey of things and i, I think that makes it a much more compelling and powerful story so anyways i'm going to keep this short this is just kind of introducing you to to roughing it and to the early pages of it and setting up at least one theme that i think is really important in this in this text i'll get more into the economics and the social life of the of carson city in the in the next stab at this book so um that's gonna be it for now uh thanks for listening and i will see you next time just can't wait to get on the road again Life I love is making music with my friends